All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. These memorable lines fall from the pen of J.R.R. Tolkien in his fictional work, The Fellowship of the Ring. But they could almost serve as a thematic description of the book of Numbers. All that is gold does not glitter. The chosen nation of Israel was the apple of God's eye, the gold standard of nations. Yet putting a negative spin on Tolkien's verse, Israel does not glitter in the book of Numbers. In this book, Israel is a wandering nation tarnished by failure after failure to relate to God. Glitter? No, Israel is a muddy mess all the way through. They prove so sinfully dysfunctional, one commentator subtitled the entire book to hell and back. I like messy people, because I'm one of them. And we need to learn how God works in the lives of sinners and those who find it so hard to obey Him. All that is gold does not glitter now. Not all who wander are lost. The book of Numbers records Israel's journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land. That's what we'll be tracking here and from this image, the satellite image. Uh, the, we have seen Israel journey southward onto the Sinai Peninsula, having exited Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. But the book of Numbers will take the nation from Mount Sinai northward up to Canaan. This journey involves three primary theaters in the book of Numbers, the first and earliest being at Sinai in that region, and then a fairly short journey narrative up to the second region of Paran. These, are, these circles here on this map are just uh, shots in the dark. I mean, they're, they're, they're somewhat close, but they're obviously big circles. Uh, but in that, very, in that general region, and then thirdly at Moab on the other side of the Jordan, and the Dead Sea and as they prepared for the conquest of the land. This journey from Sinai to Moab, where you see it here, could take about two weeks if you were on foot and just continued to walk and sleep at night. It'd take about a couple of weeks, but it will take them 40 years because of the mess in their lives. How again did we get here to this place, to this remote region and Mount Sinai, this rugged region. Remember again the book of Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt and from slavery, God's unique deliverance and leading the nation in the glory cloud down Sinai to the mountain where in the book of Exodus the law is given. God declares his light to the nation. He loves this nation. He has chosen Israel as his people and his love spills out in the law that says here is light and how to live and how to, how to direct your life. They did a very poor job of honoring it and obeying it, but that law was itself a gift at the foot of Mount Sinai. Here as well, there are instructions for the tabernacle. The tabernacle erected that would allow Israel to there meet with God in His presence in, a, in this unique way. The presence of God then descends Mount Sinai and takes up presence there in that tabernacle, that tent of meeting, and over the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God hovers in the midst of His people, in the confined space of Israel at this time, objectifying his presence in the glory cloud that led them, that looked like a fiery pillar at night. We then come to the book of Leviticus, the pinnacle book of the Pentateuch, which establishes the ritual worship of God. 
the Levitical priesthood, the holiness codes, the uncleanness laws, and all of this an enacted message to remind God's people of her sin and of her need for redemption. We come then to the book of Numbers, and we see the journey from Sinai northward to the land that God has promised over four centuries earlier to Abraham. The Hebrew name of the book, taken from the fifth word, which would really be a very favorable change if it were in our Bibles, but the Hebrew title is Bemidbar, meaning in the wilderness. Combining these titles of numbers and the title of in the wilderness, the book brokers in genealogy and geography. Who is who and who is where looms very large in this book. We might ask at this point if it's, uh, it sounds a little bit snoozy, the whole thing, a book of numbers and genealogy. I mean, think, thinking of that title in the, uh, English, the English title of numbers, I mean, how could you possibly give it a title that sounds any more boring? We're going to study numbers for some time. There's a few mathematicians here that might like that, but I could not teach them. It wouldn't work, but numbers, uh, don't be taken back by the title of the book. There's a lot more going on here than meets the eye, at least out of the gate of the book. Why should we care then about the wanderings of these numbers? Why care about the wanderings of these people? What point does it have for us? We were set up very well this morning by the reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And there is all the answer that we probably need biblically, and that is how Christ is seen in this book, how God works with his people, and how there is a message here for us to avoid the way in which they lived in their idolatry. The New Testament, in fact, draws often from the book of Numbers. The problem, of course, is that it is very hard for a Western mind to get around a book like this and to find it exciting. I think it is in many ways, but we have to do some work. And that is, as one author has noted, because of three prominent features. One, organization. Two, ritual. And three, hierarchy. That's a good way to put an American congregation to sleep, to talk about those things. Organization, organization ritual, and hierarchy. We don't broker in those terms. They're not naturally interesting to a culture that is permeated with individualism. But I think it is sanctifying for us to slow down our anxious and distracted minds to consider the message of these aspects of God's saving grace with Israel. But it is... From another angle, not just us slowing down to consider things we don't find naturally attractive, but also to recognize our own story in this story. We too are pilgrims in relationship to the world in which we live. Like Israel in the desert, we are sojourners to a promised land, to a promised kingdom. And there are many sinful failures along the journey for each of us. The book of Numbers is then in seed form our lives as God's people, as there are many spiritual lessons strewn across its pages. Now, just a few brief comments about the series as a whole, just to explain where we're headed here. We are not going to go through, word by word, this entire book. In fact, if God permits and we journey in the way that we should, we'll be already into chapter 9 by the time we leave here this morning. I said we need to slow down, so it's going to be a 30-hour message. (laughs) It's not. uh, We'll be to chapter 9 and we'll get there rather quickly. But my point is we're not going to work through every line of this book as we work through every line of the book of Leviticus, and that's part of the reason. The Pentateuch is put together in such a way that you are continually considering story and then alternatively continually considering ritual worship. 
these themes just continue to replace one another and they're kind of strung together, sewn together in such a way that Israel could not know the law by just turning to one book. But she would learn the law in the midst of narrative. And we spent a lot of time going through the book of Leviticus in that ritual law. And we're going, wherever we find duplication in the book of Numbers, we're going to skip that for this series and focus primarily on the narrative. Primarily. But having said that, we must not miss the significance of these pieces of hierarchy and organization, and particularly here, of the ritual worship of Israel. There is a message here, an enacted play, so to speak, that shows us who God is, who we are, and how we are to relate to Him. So that being said, we're going to go through this uh, book fairly quickly, but noticing here, beginning with chapter 1 and 2 this morning, I want to look first of all then, with those ideas in view, of the census of Israel's warriors. You have a sense of where they are. They're at the south end of Sinai Peninsula, and they're going to be making their way north now. It's now time to move. And uh, we have the preparation for that here in chapter 1. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So Israel encamped here at Sinai in the wilderness. There's that word. Refers Now, what's a wilderness? What's in your head when you think of that? Don't think of a vast stretch of desert sand. That's not the wilderness. The wilderness was a vast stretch, but it did contain some vegetation, even some trees. It was, in fact, a fairly ideal place to take sheep and goats and have them graze there, and even cattle. Uh, even cows could graze there. They had to move. It wasn't a great place to find pasture, but it was a decent place in most occasions. But there was just a few inches of rain each year in this wilderness area, and so you couldn't sustain crops there. Not a place where you're going to find uh, crops for food, but you can graze uh, meat there in that area. So think of it more in those terms. Nobody around, because you can't cultivate crops here, you'll see people who are passing through to feed their flocks, but not a lot of bodies. It's really, in many ways, providentially, a most ideal way to move this massive group of people, Israel, up to the promised land. There's, there's something to eat for their livestock. There is plenty of room where they're not going to cross into anyone's way. So here on Mount Sinai, God's law was entrusted to Moses, and God entered covenant with the nation of Israel, and it is now time to move. Here, the tabernacle erected where God meets with Moses. You remember that uh, tabernacle and the various aspects of it all placed together and now ready to go with Israel. This tabernacle had been constructed in accordance with God's precise instructions, so here in this tent now, God readies Moses for this journey northward to the promised land. We read then in verse 2, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company by company. So this is a census, a head count of men 20 years and older, and this census was to tie every such man to his ancestral clan and prepare them to go to war. Verse 3, the census of warriors who will conquer the promised land. This phrase, to go to war, is found now 14 times through verse 46. These men and all of these men on some level would be part of the effort to go in and conquer the land that God had prepared to be conquered for now 400 years. There was a unity of purpose here. We are these people. We are identified to our families. These are those who will go in and fight for the Lord. 
In verses 4 to 16, the census is placed on the shoulders of the heads of each tribe. Names are listed there. Their responsibility is assigned. And then pick up, if you will, at verse 17, where Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together and registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, head by head. Beginning then in verse 20, each tribe is listed with the number of warriors. And we're going to limit ourselves just to this slide with each tribe called out by name. The numbers are received, brought in, and tallied to a total of 603,550 men of 20 plus years who can fight for Israel. Let's go then to verse 44. These are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. Verse 45. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed, 603-550. Now, there's always some interesting math that goes on when you're playing with the 12 tribes of Israel. And you've probably picked this up. Um, Perhaps it's news to you, but it can be helpful to make some sense out of what's taking place there. But we have the 12 tribes, yet Levi is not counted. So how is that 12? It seems like 13, but voila, there it is, 12 once again. What happens? What happens is that Jacob chose Joseph as the, to have the firstborn status. He was firstborn, in a sense, of Rachel, Jacob's favored wife, but not the firstborn of Jacob's offspring, but he chose Joseph to be firstborn. What happened when you were firstborn? One thing that happened was in the inheritance from your father, they took the number of sons, added one to that number, divided it all up equally, but gave two portions to the firstborn. So, if we consider that there are four sons in a family, they would divide the inheritance five ways, five equal portions, and that oldest son would get two of the five, or 40% of the inheritance. Now, with that larger portion came certain financial responsibilities. It wasn't the firstborn just kind of won the luck of the draw and got extra stuff. It wasn't that, but they had certain responsibilities as the firstborn that they needed to fulfill. So when you're reading through the list of Israelite tribes, Joseph is that firstborn, so with two portions has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they are part of the inheritance. Levi then not being counted because we remember that Levi, that tribe was chosen to attend to the tabernacle. All of its pieces, setting it up, taking it down, administering uh, the worship that was there and approaching God. This this fell to the Levites and there even in some concentric circles. But notice then at verse 47, as the tribes are counted, the Levites not listed, as we've noted, verse 47, by their ancestral tribe, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, here's why, only the tribe of Levi you will not list, you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel, but appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all furnishings and, all, and over all that belongs to it. They're to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is set out, is to set out, the Levites shall take it down and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, set up, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. That's an interesting thought. So the warriors broke camp preparing to attack God's enemies in Canaan, but the Levites were to remain in the camp to attack anyone who proposed to break the line of protection that was around the presence of God. 
The sword of Israel's enemies was not nearly as lethal as the judgment of God. And so an entire tribe, what could have been a 13th, a significant number of individuals, is not even sent out into war in order to be around the tabernacle. That says something. What we have to deal with first is not the defeat of our enemies. What we need to deal with first is our relationship with God and protection of His holiness at this tabernacle. So the Levites would cordon off the tabernacle area even from the other tribes of Israel. A ritual pointing to God's utter holiness that we must approach Him on His terms. Verse 52, but the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. They line up with the directive. And we learn here, to say it again, That what comes first is not the enemy outside. What comes first is the relationship with God Himself. For He is a consuming fire. And Israel will recognize that here. The reference to obedience in verse 54 is not a throwaway phrase, but it connects to the book of Exodus and the obedience that Israel showed to God's Word as they put the tabernacle together. It's a reference numerous times in the book of Exodus. So what do we have here? Let's kind of put this into our own terms of what's taking place. You have a family with seven young children at the park, and it's a really crowded place. Let's say they're at the zoo, just to make it say that. It's, it is a zoo at the zoo. But you've got seven children at the zoo, a very crowded place, And it's time to now head home. What do mom and dad do? Let's get them all up here and let's count heads, right? we got to make sure we have all seven of them in line. Is mom and dad, are they okay with six? They're not okay with that. It's got to be all of them. They all have to be accounted for. In a very simplistic way, that's what we're seeing here. We're moving from Sinai to Canaan. And we have to make sure everybody's here, everybody's accounted for in a different way, but we're collecting everyone together as as we head forward. Now, another part of this is not only counting the heads, but how everyone is arranged. And perhaps in this family of seven, depending on the youth of the children, the arrangement in the van on the way home is also really important, isn't it? There has to be some sort of structure here, and that's just simply what we find. It's just life as you move a big group of people, and that's the arrangement of Israel's camp in chapter 2. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard, and the banners of their father's houses, they shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. The key theme here again is God's presence going with his people in the midst The concentric circles around the tabernacle, there is an arrangement here that visually displays the centrality of God's holiness and the reverent fear of God's people. And as a people, as a church, as the people of God, we too need to think in these terms. It is God first, it's where we go and what we accomplish second. We focus primarily upon who he is, upon his identity. Now every time the camp reassembles, they will systematically then encircle the tabernacle, enshrining God's presence at the center, as the center of their universe. Dempster puts it this way, I think, well, the tribes grace the divine presence in balanced symmetry. The tribes organized around the divine presence in the sanctuary is like an oasis in the wilderness. There is, it is clear what is the center of everything as they travel through this desert area. What follows in chapter 2, verses 3 to 31, is the precise arrangement of these tribes who are divided into four camps oriented to the four sides of the tabernacle. 
Now, I, I don't want to overemphasize this, make too much of it, but you're kind of looking into the mind of your Heavenly Father here. And what you're going to see is there's just not a lot of chaos. It's quite carefully arranged, this system here, as we start on the right side of this slide at the top, is Judah in the camp of Judah with Issachar and Zebulun there following and would be identified as the camp of Judah on the east side of the tabernacle. And in some ways the most prominent side because that's where you enter facing westward and where Moses and Aaron the priest, you see them on the inner circle. The second camp is the camp of Reuben and the third of Ephraim and the fourth camp, the camp of Dan. I think, I interpret that to mean that that is the tribe that will lead out uh, the others and they will move in that arrangement. There is no way to move this many people efficiently without some organization. In fact, if you would think about it for a while, these number of people, we're just talking 600,000 men of 20 years and older, and there's all kinds of debate about these numbers and if they're real and all of that. We'll just take them at face value. But that many men, this many people, with a little bit of panic, a lot of people could die. You're in the wilderness. You don't find your 40 acres where you can get away from people. You don't even find your one acre. You are piled up one on top of the other, to protect against attack from the outside, whether that be uh, wild animals or whether that be an army. And if you don't leave this place in the right way, if somebody yells out the wrong word, there could be a stampede. If it's just chaotic, lets everybody go. And, and then obviously a lot of disorganization that just wouldn't work. And so there was a very careful way in which they left, broke camp in a very careful way, in which they reassembled to set up their tents. So Judah, leading out, followed in a, in a simple uh, circular pattern out where everybody knew who they were following. And I would imagine that probably went fairly far down the line as to who followed whom, where, and how. But uh, in this way, what you see is two things, an orderly exit and entrance, circling around so there's no crossing and chaos. But what do you also see? The Levites with all of the furniture of the tabernacle in the midst of the people. So when they're camped, the tabernacle is in the very center drawing all attention, but even when they journey, it's in the center. It is, is to say that God is going with us and He is all important to everything that we're doing. It was a lot of work to carry all this stuff with the tabernacle and to take it down in the ritual way in which it was taken down, even covering over the furniture pieces so that one would not look upon these pieces and travel. It was a complicated system, but it was definitely an organized system. So God even prescribing then how the tribes will break camp and proceed to the promised land in an orderly manner. Now, a few thoughts on this. These opening chapters place a clear emphasis on the hallowed presence of God among His people. On the one hand, we have a sense of transcendence. Witnessing God's holiness, His distinctiveness, He is with the people, but only the high priest enters into His very presence one time a year and with sacrifice. There's a message that is there. On the other hand, we see imminence witnessed in God's gracious presence among His people and the stunning closeness of it. In the fiery, cloud, fiery pillar at night, the cloud by day that takes the, the nation where they are to go, there is a separation. But when that tabernacle is placed again in the center of the people, that cloud comes into the tabernacle. And there is a closeness there between God and His people. A dwelling among them. We also see this emphasis on careful organization that's fueled by submission to authority. 
We can make too much of it again, but perhaps most of us are tempted to make too little of it, and that is that our God is a God of order. You're looking at your Father. You're looking at how He would do such a thing. And then I think in a sense of how we should do things that are large and significant and can cause lots of chaos and trouble. This is, I'm not talking about your silverware drawer here. But I'm talking about how, well, that would might apply there too. Uh, but I'm talking about how a church lives its life together and how we organize for the greater cause of Christ. Anywhere we see the Lord at work among his people, we see his directives toward careful organization. We see this in the New Testament church. As the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, let all things be done decently and in order. There's to be an order and an organization that is there. Paul wrote to Timothy that you may know how to behave yourself in the church of the living God. And that means a lot more than just be organized. Both of those points. But the idea is there. And these statements merely hinting at the importance that the New Testament places upon church order. What we refer to as polity and disciplined organization. There is a type of chaos and spontaneity that makes life enjoyable at times. And we should be able to tap that here and there. But God always directs his people down ordered lines. He knows how we thrive. And that is with organization, with order, seeking to be on some level efficient. Now I, I tremble to put these words out there. Because church's obsession, in the West particularly, our obsession with efficiency is not godly. It's not godliness. We think it is. It's not. It can look different in different cultures and different places. So know that I understand that, that qualifier and that hesitation. But having said that, God is not a God of chaos. And where we live undisciplined lives, where our lives are chaotic, there we tend to accomplish less and less for God. So where there is order, where there is organization, as he leads the nation out, there is a point to that, but I think perhaps as much as anything, what it points to is the fact of hierarchy, of authority, of the sense that there is a responsibility to submit to leadership and ultimately to the leadership of God himself. Imagine one tribe saying, no, we're not going to camp here. As we settle down in this place, we like it over here better. And we're going to get out of line and we're going to settle there. It would not work, would it? Or we want to journey in the front of the line, not the back. Why does Judah always get the lead out? And Judah's probably saying, why do we always have to lead out? Right? Let, 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 let us go in the back. Somebody. We want to be closer to the tent of meeting. And then you could see it go, if it was an American scene, we'd have a vote. Right? We'd, we'd have some democratic individuals coming together and voting for who's going to be where. It's ridiculous, of course. But just imagine if the Levites said they were going to join the warriors. We don't want to watch the tabernacle. We want to fight. Give us a sword. We want to go into the promised land with the army. Imagine if this, there was this rebellion against the directives of God. And this really is part of how God has structured his universe. There is great precision and organization that we see there. Families and churches function best when authority and responsibility are carefully established and people choose to honor that authority, not resist it. We're really good as a culture at bringing up the warnings here. What about authority that gets out of line? Yeah, we, we know that. We understand that can be a major problem. But what we probably don't see so well is how often we, our individualistic resistance to authority actually hurts everybody, including ourselves. We want to be our own people and do our own thing and make it happen our own way. God gives us a message here, it kind of a, a play acted out in front of us and saying, look at this. 
This is who I am. This is how I've directed my people. And later in Numbers, we will see, by God's grace, what happens when people resist the structures of authority that God establishes among his people. It's not pretty. And it's not pretty today. Now again, with all the qualifiers rightly stated where authority can get out of control, we should take with us from this book a sense that God loves order, He loves authority. In fact, He gives authority to His people for their prosperity, for their good. And there should be something deep in your soul that says yes and amen. If that's not what's there, I want to be my own person. I don't like people telling me what to do. I don't want to get in line. In fact, when a plan is made, what I like to do is resist it and show how it's not the best plan. That kind of thinking is a rebellion in your soul. We can just say, it's just who I am. I'm just very individualistic. No, you're a rebel. And every one of us, Dan included, needs to think carefully about what's in our heart and how we're willing to submit to the authority that God has placed in our lives. Now in chapter 3, there is a census of Levite males, one month old and up, replacing the firstborn, I think, since the Exodus. In chapter 4, there is a census of Levites 30 to 50 years of age, as their particular emphasis will be upon Uh, transporting and setting up the tabernacle area. Then in chapters 5 and 6, as you just page through, there will be instructions on ritual observances, which attest to the holiness of God's people. Chapter 7 goes back in time a short ways and reminds us of the consecration and the material provision of the tabernacle as each tribe generously contributed to it. So at 7-1, we're going back in time. And looking at this very vital aspect of the tabernacle, in chapter 8, there is the cleansing and calling of the Levites who redeem the firstborn. You remember that whole situation with uh, the departure from Egypt and how the firstborn were redeemed on that night by the blood of the Lamb. Now those born since then must also be redeemed. And the Levites are going to take their place, which is a fascinating concept. What it means is that as Israel sees the Levites, it's not that, yeah, those are the people that deal with the tabernacle, period. No, you as a family would look at those Levites and say, one of those Levites is serving at the tabernacle in the place of our firstborn. And as they served there then, all of Israel had a part in that service as that redemption, that kind of strange redemptive plan was established by the Lord. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, we read of the Passover, remembering the Exodus and God's redemption and Israel again entering off where it matters most with worship at the start. But let us come then to 9.15, just for a few more moments, and see thirdly the ordering of Israel's movements. We'll deal with this again in a couple of weeks by God's grace. I'll come back here, but I just want to close it off, our consideration today, with this. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle. The glory cloud, God's presence, covers the tabernacle and the tent of testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. That is the same cloud at night, but glowing from within with God's presence, His glory. Verse 17, And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. Verse 17 works pretty fine all by itself. But notice how the text now will find about every way possible to say the same thing again. There's a reason for that. But notice it here. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days... 
the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the... Ta- we, we, we get this, Moses. We get this. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp, and then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. Maybe we could have concluded that. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out, and if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out, whether it was two days or a month or longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, Abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out, but when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. We get it. Moses repeats in order that we will get it. You don't move without God. You stay right where you are until He moves. And when He moves, you don't look at your calendar and find out if this fits well. You go. That's the clear point over and over here in this section, and such a vital one. Their success and their joy does not hinge on doing their own thing. Hear this, contemporary Western mind. Hear this. Here's where we begin to be bent to the will of God, to the purposes of Christ, against the culture in which we live. Their success and joy does not hinge on them doing their own thing, inventing their own methods, or figuring things out on their own terms. They were called to a life of submission to God's will and of obedience to His Word. And so are we. We too are sojourning pilgrims beset by self-autonomous inclinations, journeying with God's presence and headed to a land of promise. That too is us. To walk with God day by day, to move where He moves us, to settle where He settles us, to hear His Word and to say, that's my life. That's my privileged life is to heed the counsel of God day by day. To tie with Moses even morning and evening. And like them, oh, this is Christian why we need numbers. Because like them, we mess up. We make a mess of it over and over again. Like them, we naturally track our own way, naturally. Do our own thing, glory and self-promotion. But here in this ancient book of wilderness wanderings is our light and our hope. We learn here from this distinct angle, that old truth to use Forsyth's words, the first task of every soul is to find its master. That's where you start. And so many people lost in sin never get the right master. They say, that's me. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my fate. Then, to order our soul, realizing that surrender to our Lord and Savior in willing, joyful obedience is the path to our soul delight to continue to think his thoughts and conform to his ways and to live in light of his truth. That is how we were made and why we were redeemed. Do you say it? I hear this a lot from Christians and I think it myself often, I suppose, as well. But I hear this a lot. I wish God would just tell me what to do. Right? Have you said that? If he just just would 
land here and tell me what to do. Things would be so much better. I wish he'd just make it plain, take all of this consternation away. I wouldn't wonder what I'm supposed to do with this or that situation. If he would just tell me what to do, that would fix everything. And I ask you the question, would it? Would it really? How many of God's crystal clear commands have you resisted this week? Like Israel in the book of Numbers, we too are a rebellious mess. We too are a tarnished lot. We yield to greed and immoral desires, to gossip and hatred, to self-pitying despair, looking squarely in the eye of God's command, rejoice always. And we say, not today. Not under these circumstances. Not moving. He says, come with me. In this trial... You can rejoice. And we say, stay in here. How often do we choose fear? Do we choose laziness and grumbling? And how often do we reject authority? Why? Because the authority is wrong, says we. And how often, much like Israel, do we then walk right into one mess after another? Messes of our own making. But Christian, this is our hope. Like Israel, we have a merciful God who chooses to dwell among His people. He goes with us. He is with us. And if you think, why would He want to be with me? Remember Israel. This is a messy, messy journey, this thing we call life. But what we have to cling to as our ark of salvation is the presence of the Lord with us. We have a gracious God who rescues and recovers, who continues to counsel us with His good word as we wander life's twisted path, who continues to come back and to speak truth into our life and doesn't give up on us, though from all rights He should. Not all who wander are lost. But the truth is, is that some, in fact most, who wander are. And the reason that perhaps this is you, that you're lost, is because you're not tethered to the presence of God in your life. You are the master of your own soul, you think. That lostness is resolved in only one way. And that is to come to the Christ who tabernacled among us, John 1.14. We'll think on this often through this series as God allows us. But John 1.14, Christ tabernacled among us. We think of God coming off that mountain and His presence coming in the intimate closeness of the camp. We have something even greater, something even more stunning, and that is God taking on flesh and coming and dwelling with us, sweating down here with us, bleeding with us, crying with us, working with us, resting and rejoicing here in our world. If you are separated from God today in a wandering soul that thinks you're the captain of your own fate, your answer is Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and walking with you day by day. Only He can pay the penalty of your sin to reconcile you to God the Father so that you walk in faithfulness and fruitfulness with Him each day. Not in your own strength, but in His. 
And then, Christian, as we come to that place of saving faith in Christ, we can say not all who wander are lost. For many who wander life's path are pilgrims on a journey home. We know where we're headed. There is a promised land for us. And with Christ in our midst, with the Spirit filling us, our tent, and taking us as a church forward to the end that God has planned for us, we know where we're at. We do wander. And we do wander away from the Lord. But we're wandering home by His grace. It all starts with that Passover lamb sacrificed for us and then celebrating that presence of Christ who dwelt among us and is with us through His Spirit. And it continues forward now in this wilderness as we set our focus on our eternal home and say, I am liberated from the mastery of my own selfish soul. I've been liberated from the sin that comes so naturally to us apart from Christ. And I have been brought into the fellowship of the Savior who is changing me and growing me. I'm still wandering. I'm still a mess. I still don't want to move when he says move. I still don't want to stay when he says stay. But he's my Lord, my Savior, and his word is my life. That is transformed thinking. That is a new day that is dawned in our soul when we say, I want to live under His mastery and obey His word for the good of my heart for all eternity. If you're wandering away from that story, if your heart says yes and amen to that, praise God, that's a work of God in you. But if you say, I'm not there at all, I can't get you there. I can't make that happen, but God can. And He does so through His Word as you respond in faith. And we would love to put you with that Word to hear what He has counseled and to know that your wandering soul is not lost, but is headed to the presence of the Lord eternally. May that day be today for some here this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for who you are. We're grateful for the rebuke of this passage before us today. And Lord, for its great encouragement. As it points to Christ and our salvation, may we follow that path in faith. Do a work in our hearts, each of us, for the glory of your name. As we respond to this truth, through Christ we pray.